Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. Today we are discussing the outlook for the UK economy. While the world is gripped by inflation and growth shocks, to which the UK is obviously not immune, the domestic economy has also been buttressed by additional factors of its own. Joining me to discuss the outlook are Gavin Davis, Chairman of Fulcrum Asset Management and a former Chief Economist at Goldman Sachs, Ed Smith, Co-Chief Investment Officer at Rathbones, and Stephen Bell, Managing Director and Chief Economist at Columbia Threadneedle. Ed, if we start with you, uh, to what extent is the outlook for the UK economy now dominated by the monetary policy picture in the US? Well, I think the US has always mattered uh, to to the outlook for the UK insofar as US monetary policy influences the global cost of capital as well as the growth of nominally the world's largest economy. Uh, many of the UK's largest firms are multinationals and the global cost of capital matters to their investment and hiring decisions. One in every seven pounds of UK exports go to the US and obviously other export partners are hugely influenced by the US too. So thinking about what's going on now, if the Fed hike by too much, causing a dollar liquidity shortage globally and a US or and or global a recession, the medium-term consequences are likely disinflationary and could allow the UK to stop hiking sooner, possibly cut rates sooner than expected. The first rate cut tends to come around 10 months after the final rate hike. But although in the short term, the pound could drop by more because it's a cyclical uh, currency, which could cause a, uh, an inflationary impulse via more imported uh, inflation, Then on the other hand, if the Fed pauses too soon, its outsized influence on the world could mean global inflationary pressures fail to come back down, requiring more tightening from other central banks if they're not to repeat the same uh, mistake. So I think the US in some clearly has an outsized influence on the world. Domestic matters obviously are hugely important as well. But we're all interconnected. Thank you. Gavin, I think um, it was Catherine Mann at the Bank of England who who made the point that US rates going up may indeed, and dollar strength may sort of force the Bank of England's hand to some extent in terms of its own uh, interest rate policy, perhaps meaning the Bank of England have to tighten by more than they would would wish to. At the moment, do market participants in, in the UK almost have to pay more attention to FOMC minutes than to anything happening on the home front? Well, as Ed says, the Fed always dominates monetary policy considerations globally anyway. And that has certainly been the case in the last two or three years. But other central banks have lagged behind the Fed this time, the ECB by a distance, and also the UK. The UK started out early, but then had a very long pause and has been lagging behind the Fed. I think the key here is that Although the Fed determines the intellectual climate and the overall cost of capital globally, really, it's a sort of benchmark for that. Other countries have floating exchange rates against the dollar. So they can choose either to follow the Fed to protect their currencies or to allow the dollar to rise against their their own currencies. And almost all currencies this year have moved down against the US dollar. The dollar has been the outlier. So most central banks actually have taken the decision 
to watch the Fed tightening, watch the dollar rising, and not added to their own intention to tighten policy. In fact, if anything, they have been happy to see their exchange rates going down. Now, that changed a little bit during the recent UK crisis because we certainly were on the verge of a proper uh, serious sterling crisis in the middle of that uh, week of crisis. And so the the Bank of England rapidly, I think, realised that they couldn't just sit and watch the pound continuing to go down. And in that period, the pound went down of its own accord, really against everything, including the euro and including more or less all currencies in the world. So at that point, we were clearly beginning to stand out as a crisis currency, sterling was. But I would say that's now been largely subdued and we're back to where we were before. And I don't think that the Fed will determine what the Bank of England does. It will set the backdrop, but the bank will have a choice between following the Fed and trying to stabilise the currency or allowing the currency to float lower against the US, which is what has been happening. And I think is more likely that's more likely to be the choice. So I'm not actually expecting the Bank of England to catch where the Fed takes its short rate to, which will be roughly 4.5%. I don't think the bank is going to take sterling interest rates to that level. And as a result, I think the pound could go lower against the dollar, not necessarily against the euro, but I think the big trend in the dollar is not over until the Fed itself has stopped tightening policy. Thank you. And Stephen Gavin's uh, very eloquently outlined the, the dilemma that the, the Bank of England um, have. Um, if they did choose that route of allowing sterling to, to float lower, is the risk, therefore, that inflation stays higher for, for longer in, in the UK? Is that something that investors need to, need to sort of bake into their scenarios uh, right now? Well, this could be a first on your podcast, uh, David, because I think you've got three economists here agreeing. Um, so that US, wasn't the plan. <laughs> the US sets the scene, but we have an independent monetary policy. What the Bank of England are facing is a weakening economy and high inflation. That's the cocktail central banks don't want. And the weakening economy, real wages are falling. The government's tightening fiscal policy. Our biggest market in Europe is looking soggy. It's, it's not a bad, not a good background in terms of trade loss, energy prices still very high. And before Liz Truss, her one bequest in a way, is the price cap scheme. The demand destruction from that was likely to lead to such a big recession. The Bank of England would not have had to raise interest rates. They could look through the one-off rises in prices, expecting unemployment to rise, et cetera, et cetera. Well, once she took that away, suddenly they needed to raise rates more. And yes, despite an independent monetary policy, rates do move together. Um, and we see that in inflation and interest rates. So I agree with Gavin. I don't necessarily think we're going to have to put interest rates up quite as far as the market expects. They've calmed down a bit. And the reason for that is we've still got these weakening factors. We'll just have to see how it plays out. One thing I do expect is that if and when unemployment does start increasing, that inflationary pressures domestically will dissipate quickly because our markets are really quite flexible nowadays. And if that happens, the Bank of England can look through what is going to be a very big bulge 
of inflation as a result of food and energy prices and the weakness of sterling that we've already seen. Thank you. Um, Ed, as Chief Investment Officer at Rathbones, I guess you have to think about these questions a little bit further downstream in terms of what they what they potentially mean for for portfolios. And if we do have inflation longer and higher in the UK than maybe was expected even even six months ago, how do you think about that in terms of asset allocation? So actually, so we think really about uh, scenario planning, particularly at times of heightened uh, uncertainty. So, and markets, after all, are probability weighting mechanisms. Are effectively they probability weight together people's uh, different views of different scenarios. And whilst we do expect inflation to fade meaningfully next year, and a recession is likely to unleash some uh, disinflationary forces. We do think that we are. We think that the UK, out of all the major uh, economies, is most at risk of inflation staying uh, uh, uncomfortably high. It's not necessarily our base case, but we think there is more risk, greater probability assigned to that scenario, because the supply of labour in the UK has failed to recover. Uh, much at all since the pandemic, the OECD as a whole's labour supplies back to the pre-crisis trend. You've seen uh, an article in the in the FT a few weeks ago outlining how we're the only country in the OECD who where the number of people off long-term sick has continued to rise since the since the the pandemic. Inflation expectations. We think the medium to long-term inflation expectations uh, in the UK are look in danger of being. You know, what I would term unanchored. I don't really see that in the medium and long-term inflation expectations elsewhere uh, uh, in the world. And of course, the uncertainty around the pound. Yeah, uh, as Gavin highlighted, if that goes lower, you know, we've got one of the most highest imported contents of our inflation basket, and that could uh, create some uncertainty there as well. You know, the rule of thumb is a, a 10% depreciation in the pound increases inflation by about 1% after about 12 Twelve months. So, as an investor, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we're looking to get if, where we have UK assets. Yeah, we're looking to make sure that they are the cash flows underlying them are res- more resilient to uh, uh, inflation, and it also means you know, uh, uh, looking more internationally, which is the bulk of our assets. Thank you, and um, Gavin. From your point of view, is is transitory dead? Is is the new normal going to be an inflation rate that's that's higher than very many market participants have have gotten used to over the past decade and more. Well, I do worry about that. I mean, transitory has not had a good 2022, (laughs) to put it mildly. Some of the transitory points, some of the points made by Team Transitory probably will come true. I mean, it's unlikely that we will have the energy shock quite as exacerbated as it is right now into 2023 and through 2023. I think it's improbable that the supply chain's shock will remain as serious as it was in the first half of this year. It's already begun to improve. So I think some of the goods inflation that we've seen in energy, food, and manufactured goods for supply chain reasons will begin to diminish. The worry, though, I think in the US and the UK and indeed the EU is that service inflation is lagging, I think, goods inflation and is more permanent. 
probably, and will take a lot longer to be brought under control. And it depends a lot on the labour market and how the labour market responds to ongoing high rates of consumer price inflation. I actually think it will take a greater slowdown in the economy to fix service inflation than the market seems to think. If you look at the market for the US, UK, EU, the break-even inflation rates priced into the bond market are quite low, actually. They're in the 2 to 3% region for, for a long time out. And the market is not really pricing a global recession. So the market is saying that we can get inflation back pretty close to government, to central bank targets, without a recession. I think that's optimistic. I think it's if we're going to get inflation back to the 2% US, UK, EU target, it's likely we'll have a slower for longer economy and possibly a significant rise in unemployment. That may be what's needed to do it. And central banks will have to choose the pace at which they bring inflation down against the risk that they will tip the economy into a more serious recession. But I think this sort of happy outcome where there's no recession and inflation just returns to target, which is the team transitory view, I think, mm-hmm. is on the margins of being far too uh, optimistic. Sure. I, you, you mentioned on service inflation and obviously maybe the largest component of that is it tends to be the labour market. Ed referenced in his earlier remark the very high level of, of absence from the labour market due to due to sickness or, or whatever. Is that something that is perhaps the, the main reason why service inflation could be stickier in, in your view or, or are there other factors additional to that? Well, service inflation, I think, depends a lot on wages and you said it. The labour markets in the US, UK, Europe are all still straining at the, you know, the, the most... Um, buoyant that that we've seen really since I guess the 1960s. So we've not. But seen is that buoyancy a supply, a lack of supply element, or a, or a buoyancy of demand element? It's both. Okay. I think it's both. I think the demand for labour is still there. It's the demand for labour we are beginning to see slow down, mm-hmm. but the supply of labour, the participation rate, is not returning to where it was prior to the pandemic at least not returning rapidly to that. So the supply-demand balance in the labour market has not yet been adjusted back to normal. But the other thing I wanted to say, David, is that there are elements of service inflation which are not directly related to to labour. For example, housing. (laughs) Housing is a very big chunk of inflation, especially in America. It's 40% of the CPI. And housing as it appears in the in the consumer price index, lags what's going on in the housing market. The housing market is slowing in America. I think it's just about to start slowing here too. But we're not we won't see that show up in rents and the CPI until probably a year from now. So there is a long period where housing, which is critical to the inflation rate, will continue to keep pressure upwards on inflation and wages. I doubt if they'll slow much next year, if at all. Thank you. Stephen, um, both Ed and and Gavin referenced the exogenous uh, factors that have 
contributed to inflation around the world and in the UK, such as supply chain issues. But are we getting closer to the point where we'll start to see divergences in how uh, the major economies perform, both in terms of what their inflation rate is, but also their their growth rate? We've had, I suppose, a COVID-induced period where everybody took a took a hit, maybe to a greater or lesser extent, or at different paces. But is the next step a great divergence? I think the developed world's going in a recession. Different reasons, though. Although inflation looks similar in, say, we compare the European Union, the US, UK, in terms of headline, nearly, well, nearly 10% in the US, 10% in Europe, the composition's quite different. So half, fully half, of Eurozone inflation is food and energy. In the United States, that's less than a quarter. And that means the rest of it's domestic, not in terms of trade loss, a one-off effect, and it's rent and wages, as Gavin's mentioned, and they get that down in the recession. In Europe, that massive rise in food and energy prices is a big hit to real incomes and is damaging demand directly. In case of many companies, they just can't... You can't produce using gas at current prices if it's a big part of your cost. Zinc, aluminium, all those companies are just out of business. So that reduces the... uh, the, the weakens the economy. In terms of the labour supply... There are two areas that we can be confident we will get a resumption of labour supply. First of all, about 200,000 extra students, extra people went on studying in COVID. They will graduate, finish their courses, it's already come down a bit. There's about 250,000 bodies going to enter the labour force, eager beavers, in the next year or so. In addition, all of the increase in jobs in the UK in the last year, more than all of it, has reflected non-UK-born workers, many of whom have been here for a long time, who went home during COVID. It was cheaper to go to Pakistan or Romania, wherever it was, than here. And many of them received <coughs> quite legally their fellow payments. They're coming back. Immigration will pick up whoever is Home Secretary next week. And the effect of all of that is that we will get a labour supply. The long-term sick is an issue. Many demoralised, stressed public sector workers taking long-term sick leave, coming back for a day and then going off again. And that needs to be addressed one way or another. So I think labour supply is a damaging factor, but it will improve. And it's at least as important for our fiscal position that these people are in work and paying taxes as it is for our inflation situation. But we will get improved labour supply, reduced labour demand, and it will help to curtail the domestic sources of inflation, which are much stronger, as I say, in the United States, which is why they have to induce a recession. We may get one here anyway, um, why the interest rate levels, I think, will end up being higher in the US than they are going to be in Europe. Thank you. And to what extent does the high inflation rate address the participation rate? Because, you know, many people came out of came out of the pandemic with very high savings rates and thought maybe I don't want to go back to work and I've got enough to retire on. But when they did that calculation, they didn't do it based on inflation being being 10% and their pot dwindles and they have to re-enter the labour force? Yes, this is the backward bending supply curve of labour, which is not a Pilates position of extreme agony <laughs> at all. It is a fact that some people, if they get more money, will work less. And it wasn't just the huge amount of money that government threw at us, quite rightly, and then said we can't spend, which was the COVID piggy bank, as I call it. They were very sadly getting on for 50,000 excess deaths. That means there was probably 40,000 excess housing inheritances, median age of the recipient, probably 50 something. And they may have said, oh, my job's become a complete nightmare. I've got this pot of money. I need to sort things out. I'll withdraw from the labour force. 
that may or may not come back. We may or may not see those excess retirements that we've had reverse. I don't know. But generally speaking, in this country, we have had a labour force that's been willing to work later, particularly women. Women now work full-time throughout their career and continue working. And that's a positive factor, I say, fiscally and for every other reason. So I think we will resume that upward path. But the fact is we've had this, if you like, big hit. Some of it reversed, some of it went. Thank you. Ed, to what extent will do you think fiscal policy will become more important in determining all of these factors in the in the years to come? Um, as I said, we had a decade where central bank policy, QE, was a major determinant. Then we had a period around the pandemic where, to a greater or lesser extent, every government threw money at everything. Now the paths are going to, to move in a different way. How, how do you think about those considerations? Well, I think the uh, surge in bond yields and interest rate expectations during the thankfully short-lived era of Liz Trust showed that fiscal policy clearly matters. If politicians do something to stoke demand at a time when inflation is pressured, monetary policy will become tighter in order to offset the effects. I think the I think a lot of the popular press sort of misreported what was causing the surge in bond yields, saying it's about fiscal credibility. Well, actually, fiscal credibility sort of affected the, the valuation of the pound and other risk premium, but really the, the surge in bond yields was all about changes in interest rate expectations um, because you had fiscal policy suddenly working against monetary policy and then and that's why it's come back quickly. So, yeah, I think uh, fiscal policy doesn't exist in uh, in a vacuum. It works sort of uh, symbiotically with, with, with monetary uh, policy. I do, thinking sort of slightly further out, I think there is some concern that perhaps between 2023 and 2025, the Sunak administration could be too austere and if inflation dissipates for whatever reason, then the Bank of England could lower monetary policy and sort of counter it in the other direction. But if inflation stays too high and fiscal policy stays too austere, then monetary policy is constrained to react. And you could have a situation where we're fiscally compounding our structurally weak uh, growth outlook for the UK, which is structurally weaker than than in many economies, in uh, in my opinion. So I think that that is a a, a longer term risk from fiscal policy. Thank you, um, Gavin. Just to I guess um, follow up on a couple of the the points um, Ed Ed made around um, the outlook in the in the UK perhaps being structurally weaker from a growth point of view. But the challenge is how, how does one address that without having a much looser fiscal policy, which causes um, interest rates to, to rise? Is there a, but is the bigger risk that we do have too tight a fiscal policy and that that creates a divergence from where the rest of the world is and from there we get a, a worse outcome? I think there is, there is some risk of that. Um, the, the recent episode in the UK reminded everybody that if you are not sufficiently disciplined in your medium-term fiscal targets, then interest rates might rise rather sharply because an independent central bank, as Ed says, will probably respond to that by raising short rates and then the bond market comes under pressure. So 
really for the first time in, in multiple decades, actually, we had an episode of a G7 country with its own currency having a financial shock in which fiscal policy was a kind of central player. It wasn't the only player, by the way, by any means, but it was a central player. And I think that that's new and it's a, it's a good reminder that if governments do not remember to take fiscal responsibility carefully, then the financial markets can punish them severely. And I, the first job I ever did as an economist was in number 10 in, in the mid-1970s when that government made a complete mess of fiscal policy. There was a massive sterling crisis and, and you know many emergency budgets and the election of Mrs. Thatcher, who fixed the problem. So I have been wondering, actually, if that could ever occur again, and I no longer have to, to wonder. I think it can occur. On this occasion, I'm sure the LDI issue was central as well. It wasn't just that a new prime minister and chancellor appeared kind of careless about medium term, the medium-term fiscal framework. It was also, as Ed says, an interest rate shock with leveraged pension funds at the long end, especially of the linker market, the index linked market. So it was a combination of things that caused the shock, but it certainly means that the incoming prime minister will take his fiscal targets extremely seriously. That does perhaps result in some risk of too much austerity, but where we've just been, I would very much welcome a period of calm and lack of anxiety about the medium-term fiscal framework. It may be that the new government, the new prime minister and chancellor, find that they can ease fiscal policy in the UK more than they think, having got it under control again. And that would be a nice problem for them to have. I think it's quite likely they will do that. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, they are absolutely focused and rightly on getting credibility back, both into fiscal policy and the relationship between the Treasury and the bank and counterinflation policy. And that's, I'm happy to say, that's where the new prime minister seems to be. It's where he was when he was chancellor. And it's good to have it back. Thank you. Um Stephen, um, and, and uh, a popular um, economist coined the phrase um, "moron premium" to uh, describe the uh, the extra uh, risk uh, associated with UK assets as a result of the actions of recent <laughs> governments, shall we say? Um, as a as an economist, but also as a, a strategist working at an investment house. Has that gone away? Can one now treat the UK as a as a grown up asset, UK assets as a grown up asset class again? Well, if I could paraphrase Lord Denning when he was Lord Chief Justice, "Be ye ever so high and mighty, the bond market is above you," <laughs> and that's what happened to the Chancellor, who was reckless, ill judged, and actually, once he'd seen his mistake, arrogantly said he'd do more. We now are calm, and we don't have to uh, rely on commentators. We can measure the credit default swap for the UK. And no one seriously thinks we're going to default on our government debt. But anyway, there is a credit default swap market. We went way above Germany's level, who've just announced a huge support for their energy market, by the way, a rather cunning plan, but that's not the topic for today. 
5% or more of GDP fiscal expansion, bigger than much bigger than Kwasi Kwarteng was contemplating, but they have got low debt and our current account surplus. We don't have, well, we have current account deficit of huge size. So calm has been restored as measured by the credit default swap market because our rates, which went up to 50 basis points, have now come all the way down to meet Germany's, which have gone up a bit because they're borrowing a lot more. So crisis over because we've got someone in charge who seems to understand the rubric. But we are not... Uh, in a situation where we can ease fiscal policy, maybe things will get a lot better and the tightening could limit. But from a level where our tax take is at record highs, except for the immediate post-war period, that's a pretty tough time to look at where our taxes are going to go up, spending is going to be constrained after years of squeeze, very little fat to cut there at all. It's quite a a bleak fiscal prospect. And I think the limiting factor is not just inflation. It's our huge current account deficit, which normally I would say, forget about that. It's, you know, floating exchange and the rest of it. But it's been so big for so long, it's accumulating up to an interest on interest problem. And going back to interest rates themselves, let's not forget, they are coming off exceptional extraordinarily low levels. Europe negative, many countries negative, our rates are zero, bond yields are virtually nothing. So as we come out of a period like that, there will always be, as the tide goes out, will show errors errors in people's behaviour. Who would have thought it was our fuddy-duddy final salary pension schemes who would be the big beacon for that? And it caught the attention of the world. So that is a worry as these rates rise that leveraged areas will be exposed. Thank you. Ed, what lessons do you think from the past decade in in markets, but also in economies, do you think investors can take into the the decade ahead? Uh, Well, I would say some humility about our real ability to actually understand the inflation process. I think 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there were a lot of economists and strategists predicting runaway inflation then when we had you know, when the QE, QE era was was fairly new didn't quite understand how it worked what the consequences would would be on on, on broader money supply etc and then we had a decade where you had central bank conferences all sort of scratching their heads wondering you know how do we deal with this missing inflation uh, problem now, of course, this time yeah, we're unlikely to have a financial crisis and the prolonged sort of disinflationary forces of, of, of deleveraging from that sort of balance sheet uh, recession. But yeah, some of the forces that tamp down on, on, on inflation and on interest rates haven't gone away. And I think it is important to remember that. And you know, whilst we're you know, clearly looking at some of the proximate causes for high inflation right now and, think, and quite rightly f- focusing on them, I think the key lesson is in the back of the mind, let's just be a bit humble about our ability to understand what drives this over the, over the medium to longer term. And therefore, as an investor, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Thank you. Gavin, same, same question to you. The- Last decade, I'm sure, caused introspection among many market participants. But what lessons can we can we take from it for the future? Agree completely with Ed. We, as a profession, economists and certainly central bankers, were complacent about inflation and were overconfident about the degree to which they could boost economic growth without inflation reappearing. And if you go back 
just at the beginning of the pandemic, the Fed was reframing its monetary strategy for the future. And basically, that reframing involved pushing the labor market to the maximum possible degree of tightness on the grounds that any inflation shock would be small and would be rapidly reversed, could be rapidly reversed by the Fed. And I think almost incredibly, that whole framework has just been forgotten about. It was unveiled with a massive fanfare of trumpets in August 2020 after multiple years of thinking. And yet, you know, a year later, it was dead and buried and the Fed was apparently fighting a completely different battle. And what that tells me is we just had the analysis wrong at that point. I don't think we should ever have been thinking we could run these economies as hot as the Fed and the Bank of England and the ECB actually all thought they could. So that is that is definitely one thing. The other thing, though, is we've been reminded that the factor that drives growth and inflation is not always demand. When excess demand comes along, unemployment falls, inflation rises, and central banks have no problem. They can just mm -hmm. tighten policy and everybody agrees it's needed. Mm -hmm. But what has happened in the last couple of years is a bit of that, absolutely, but in addition, very big supply shocks, which have come from the pandemic, the aftermath of the pandemic, and now the war and the impact of that on commodity prices. So what we've had is a little bit of a rerun of the supply shocks of the 1970s when policy is far harder to decide upon and to get through a political system and where volatility becomes extremely high amid very uncomfortably low returns from financial assets, both bonds and equities. So we've had this big reminder that the world can return to a more normal state in which not everything is benign all of the time. And I think those risk premia will persist as we go forward. Thank you. And Stevens, same question to, to you. What, what lessons from the past decade can we carry forward with us into an uncertain world? Well, I strongly agree with Ed. Humility is something that if you haven't got it when you start investing, you very quickly acquire it. <laughs> yes. I would just like to say what an incredible achievement governments and the private sector have made. We had the global financial crisis, which whatever the ingredients of was a problem, been resolved. We had the COVID massive lockdown, unprecedented in peacetime. And we've now had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a huge sudden shock. And yet, although things aren't great, we still have done one thing importantly and keep unemployment down. Unemployment in most developed countries is at or beyond record lows. Mm -hmm. And that's great for everybody. It's particularly good for those sectors who are often discriminated against uh, because you have to get the worker you wouldn't really like. And that's very good for social cohesion. And as we go into this weakening economy globally, housing market weakness, people suffering, struggling to make their mortgage payments, at least they can get a job. At least they can not be forced to work part-time or not at all. And in that sense, it's a positive. For financial investors, we're going to go through a tough time for risk assets. That extra tightening, that extra easing that the Fed continued way beyond when it should have done, put some more froth in the markets. That's been blown off. I think we are going to go through a, a tough time over the winter. 
And then we could get one of those great buying opportunities. So goodbye, good riddance to 2022 when we get, come to sing our New Year's Eve songs. Let's hope that 2023, even if it doesn't start well, ends much better. Thank you for that, Stephen Bell, Managing Director and Chief Economist at Columbia Threadneedle. And thank you to Gavin Davis, Chairman at Fulcrum Asset Management, and Ed Smith, Co-Chief Investment Officer at Rathbones Investment Management for your time today. And thank you all for listening. And do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.